Hello and welcome to this first episode of Peds Pod. I'm Ruth Bowen, a Bristol GP, working for the BNSSG Training Hub, bringing child and young person education to primary care clinicians. For this first episode, we'll be taking a trip to Bristol Children's Hospital, where we're lucky enough to be speaking to Dr Michael Malley, a paediatric emergency care consultant, about the non-blanching rash. So, Michael, do you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, well, thank you so much for involving me in this. Um, My name is Michael Malley, so I'm a consultant in paediatric emergency medicine at Bristol Children's Hospital and did my training in London, now working in Bristol and involved in quite a bit of global health stuff as well. Amazing. And I understand that you've got some work going on in the Children's Hospital at the moment, have you, involving GPs? We do indeed. So we have the GP stream, which is currently running in the Children's Hospital, which has recently got substantive funding. And we're looking to to have at least one GP in the department every afternoon, doing the wonderful kind of GP risk holding and and quick decision making that we really value very, very, very highly. So if people are interested in finding out more about that, they're very welcome to contact me. Fantastic. What a great thing to be doing. And so moving on to today, talking about the non-blanching rash, I thought we could start with a case just to guide us through what would be concerning features of a non-blanching rash and what wouldn't be concerning. And when ought we be sending patients to the paediatric A&E department and indeed in primary care, is there anything that we ought to be doing to manage them there? So the case that we've got today, a physician associate rings about a normally fit and well 15-month-old who has two petechiae on the chest noticed one hour ago. She's got a two-day history of coryza and a wet cough. She's smiley, interactive and well hydrated. Her temperature is 38.2, but all other observations are normal. Her chest is clear, but she's got an erythematous pharynx, pink tampanic membranes and bilateral cervical lymphadenopathy. The physician associate is looking for guidance on whether to send her to the A&E department. What else would you want to know? What would you be chatting to her about on the phone? Sure. I mean, this is a, this is a relatively common scenario, isn't it? And I guess it's something that strikes fear into the hearts of people when you hear a non-budging rash and a fever in a child. It's like, oh my, oh my God, you know, send, send them in and get them and let's get some blood on them and stuff. But I think there's quite a lot of reassuring stuff in this history. So I guess like first and foremost, the number one question is, does the patient look ill or not? And basically, if the, if the patient looks unwell, then conversation over. They need to go to hospital and they need to consider you know, IM antibiotics in the community. So if you've got an unwell child who's got a non-blanching rash of any description, then send them in and conversation over. But this one, it sounds like there's lots of interesting information here that kind of mm. help us to make a bit more of a cultured decision about it. So it sounds like so two particular spots Obviously, the, the distribution of those is quite helpful to know. It sounds like maybe they are on the upper kind of part of the chest, so SVC distributions. It's quite helpful just to clarify that. And if the person has exposed the child to look for other signs of, um, of a non-blanching rash as well. And when you talk about the distribution, why is that important? So I guess what we're looking for is uh, is an alternative explanation. And one of the most powerful things in medicine anyway, isn't it, is if you have a, something that is less severe but more likely Um, Mm -hmm. and so we're looking for an alternative explanation for these signs and certainly in the SVC distributions that's pretty much from your nipple line upwards including all the way down your arms so you imagine you hold your arms up in the air and it's everything above the above the nipples from there if you cough if you vomit if you raise your SVC pressure at all you're going to burst tiny little blood vessels which is what causes petechiae and so actually being in the SVC distribution is already a lower concern to us than than being elsewhere in the body. I guess particularly in this case because she has got a cough so that would link in with that. Exactly and that that really goes with 
A, the fact that she's been coughing, maybe some children have been vomiting or retching, even though they haven't vomited. Mm-hmm. And that will definitely bring you up in petechiae. And you can imagine, I'm sure we've all seen people who have got petechiae all over their faces. And it's the same anywhere in that SVC distribution. And then corroborating that more plausible explanation is just digging into exactly what we think is going on here. And it sounds like they've got an upper respiratory tract infection. Corroborating things there are the symptomatology in that she's got a cough and a bit of a runny nose. The fact that she's got the cervical lymphadenopathy, which I think is actually quite a helpful thing as well. Obviously, in the case of non-blanching rash, maybe we just want to check that she's not got any axillary or any inguinal lymphadenopathy as well. Just thinking about more hematological malignancies is a very rare cause of Mm. of non-blanching rashes. And she's got that red fruit as well. So we're bringing a picture together here that sounds very much like a benign upper respiratory tract infection with probably some particular in the SVC distribution. Okay, so what about it would safely reassure you? Do you think this is a patient who could go home or is this someone you would be advising to to come in? Yeah, so it's a really good question. And I think partly it depends on the person who's got them in front of them. So again, if you are concerned, if you do think that this is an unwell child, then they need to come in. And we'll always be very happy to see anyone in that ballpark. So no one should ever be worried about sending someone to us if they think that they're unwell. Next question is, is the rash petechial or is it purpuric? Mm-hmm. And that's quite a big distinction for us. So just to clarify, so petechiae are the little red spots that if we if we all undressed, and like, we'd probably find a couple on all of us. Like, so it's, it's very normal to have at least two on you, even for small children. And they're under two millimetres. They're red and obviously they did go away when you press them. Purpura, you're more kind of bruisey purplish marks that can be reddish as well or more violaceous sometimes and which are more than two millimeters in diameter and they're just a little bit more significant they're more significant to see and they're more significant in pathology as well and it's probably a good time to just talk very quickly about the the PIC study which um, mm. is the petechiae in children study which was done recently at over 10 large departments in the UK with uh, over 1500 participants which looked at the outcome from non-blanching rashes in children and they found that of all non-blanching rashes I think the incidence of meningococcal sepsis was 1% and mm-hmm. previously pre-vaccination and when lots of ITUs were seeing lots of this it was more like 15-20% but now in that study the most up-to-date and the most useful probably at the moment uh, it's only 1% so that reassures us in general and all of those were purpuric basically so particular okay. spots were a very reassuring sign that this was unlikely to be serious bacterial infection. So maybe then that suggests that that pre-test probability is changing now that we've got the vaccination schedule being rolled out, that fever and petechiae isn't an automatic referral to the PZNE department. Is that essentially what they were saying Mm -hmm. from that? Absolutely. I think that's a really important movement because they were looking at a number of guidelines across the country about how that affected how children were treated and how they were investigated. And I think the NICE guidelines basically say to treat anyone who's got a non-blanching rash and a fever, but actually using a bit more clinician gestalt was a bit more specific, maybe a little bit less sensitive, because clearly if you're going to treat everyone, then you're going to be pretty sensitive, as in 100%. Their figures show that they reduced the sensitivity to about 90% with clinician gestalt, but those two children who slipped the net were picked up before they needed significant escalation. I think that's when they came back with good safety netting. Mm-hmm. So from the question of what reassures you, Petechiae rather than purpura reassure you. If you have petechiae, then a reassuring explanation. So is there a mechanical cause? Like have they just been coughing or vomiting? 
quite often for small babies, if they're sitting in a car seat, then they quite often get particularly on their legs. And that's quite yeah. a, that's a relatively common finding that uh, you sort of take the history and they've, they've just got a new car seat or something, or they're getting a bit big for their current car seat and they're lopping off the blood supply a little bit at their thighs. And so that can be a, a plausible explanation. They've, have they been held? Have they just had a blood test done the day before? Mm-hmm. You know, they've, they've had someone holding them quite tightly or armbands or whatever. So a mechanical explanation for, for the rash is really helpful. And again, just coming back to that mechanical explanation... Does that at all link in with your worries about non-accidental injury and how that might sort of feed into the differentials that you'd be considering? Yeah, definitely. So whenever you have a non-blanching rash, part of the worry is that there's some nasty differentials on the list, right? So like there's, you know, there's meningococcal sepsis or sepsis of any cause with DIC, leukaemia, non-accidental injury. And then we're looking at three of the biggest killers of children in in the UK. So that that Mm. can be quite scary. So yes, whenever you're looking at thinking about a mechanical cause, the next question for that, does that make sense? Um, mm-hmm. And if that does make sense, it's like, yes, they've been coughing, they've been vomiting, or yes, they've clearly been sitting. I can see, I can imagine how this happened and what they're telling me makes sense with that. Yeah. Then that's obviously a reassuring thing as well. Clearly, we're always happy to discuss safeguarding <laughs> issues as well, either with us or with the community paediatrician, depending on the pathway. But something to be aware of with any non-blanching rash that could be a bruise or could be mechanical. Are there any other particular diagnoses that you'd be thinking of when you mention that purpuric rash and thinking about distribution in particular? Yeah, sure. So once you're in the category of purpuric rash, we're already taking it more seriously. And we're Mm. trying to think by default, this is something which needs further investigation. So you've got a purpura over two millimetres, that needs investigation. The only sort of workaround to that, and there's one exception, that's Enochshan line purpura. Mm-hmm. So HSP, as I'm sure you'll be aware, is a IgA vasculitis, which can cause inflammation in the capillaries, and that's what causes the bit of capillary leak, and then you get a non-blanching rash from that. That's typically on the buttocks and the lower legs, and so in a typical distribution there, quite often raised as well, so you can actually feel the petechiae because it's inflammatory, right? So like inflammatory means it's a bit raised off the skin. And colloquially, I think they're also a bit more violaceous as well. It's almost like a bit mm. more ready purple than meningococcal purple, bruisey, bleedy kind of thing. Yes. Uh, those are all medical terms. Um, <laughs> of and then you are fairly sure that we have HSP and it's a cracking history in a very well child. Mm-hmm. The other things that might come along with that would definitely be arthralgia. Mm-hmm. So typically in the ankles or the knees, they've got a bit of a swollen joint maybe that they're struggling to mobilise on it a little bit. And a little bit red, it might be a bit hotter. But it would obviously be useful to do a urine dip and see if there's any renal involvement, so blood or protein in the urine. They might also have some tummy pain with that as well. And if you're getting a classic constellation of symptoms there, then you can move down the HSP route. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily going down the sort of purpura needs to come into hospital and needs need to manage this. So well child purpura in that distribution on the legs ideally raised ideally with a bit of arthralgia or other hsp symptoms and with a normal urine dip that says there's no renal involvement and a normal blood pressure how common is it that those patients would have some of that arthralgia or some of the abdominal pain as well that's a very good question i don't know the actual figures and pretty common that's what makes your diagnosis pretty textbook i guess Mm. and that can give you extra confidence in the community to say I think I know what's going on here. I'm really happy you're a very well child. And I'm going to deviate a little bit from a cure that needs to come in and be seen because I'm very, very happy. If you're in the middle and you don't have those signs and you think, oh, there's an evolving picture here, they might be febrile because they might have an upper respiratory tract infection at the time, and then absolutely they need to they need to come in. But lots of them that we see do have the arthralgia component. Mm. 
And what route would you then be sending them down if you wouldn't be sending them into A&E, if this is a, a well-looking chart in front of you that you're convinced that this is HSP? Yeah, so the main thing with HSP is making sure that there's no renal involvement. And so that's the main complication. Mm. Um, so getting a normal urine dip and normal blood pressure is really, really helpful. And then there's a guideline again on the system, which is available by, by Googling, which I think is weekly reviews for the first four weeks and then once every two week reviews after that for a urine dip and a blood pressure, ideally at the GP surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, and if throughout that time there's no really severe arthritis and no renal involvement, then they can, can be managed in the community from that perspective. Fantastic. So actually, in that case, are you saying that we wouldn't necessarily even have to refer them as long as we follow those guidelines and actually at every step of the way those investigations are normal? Yeah, absolutely. The only thing that will change the management is thinking about giving steroids or other treatment normally for significant renal or joint involvement where they're not able okay. to wait there. Mm. Thanks very much. I will add the links on at the bottom of this podcast for both the HSP guidelines and the non-blanching rash within the Bristol Children's Hospital guidelines. And just talking about the HSP, obviously the other differential in that area is ITP, so idiopathic thrombocytopenic purpura. This is something that we do see quite a lot of as well. And this feeds into the query HSP, but without Mm. classical arthralgia and other symptoms. And so I guess anyone who's got a purpuric rash but isn't barn door HSP should come into us anyway and we will end up doing bloods for ITP and we'll see what, what their plate account is. Realistically, most of them won't end up getting treated even if their plate accounts are extremely low. So I've seen ones with mm. plate accounts of one before. And I think it's just really nice to imagine this one little platelet wandering around the body yes. just like desperately <laughs> looking for its friends. You know, if they don't have wet bleeding and they are clinically very well, the odds are they probably won't get any formal treatment, but they may well be followed up if their plate accounts are very low and they'll get good, good advice not to do sports and that kind of thing. And so that just feeds into the purpura, well child, not classical HSP, needs to come to us even if it gets ITP. Still needs the monitoring even if they're well. Yep. Brilliant. So with this particular child, it sounds like you're happy for them to go home. And as you said, with the PIC study and the fact that that safety netting was obviously so important in picking up those two extra cases that were missed, is there any specific advice that you would want given to those parents? Yeah, and I think there's, I think there's a few ways that you could do it. So I, I think in this case, we've got a source, we've got a mechanical reason, we've got petechiae, and we've got a well child. So they're ticking all four boxes there, and that's why I'd be pretty happy having that conversation with the clinician saying, I think as a joint decision-making, we could get them home. Mm-hmm. The other way to do it, if you were more concerned, would be to say... I don't know where these have come from. There's a few, maybe they're not quite in the right distribution. You look very, very well. Do you want to either come back in four hours or six hours or at the end of the day, or should we at least have a phone call at that time to Mm -hmm. say, are they spreading? And if they're spreading, then maybe that's a time for escalation as well. For the parents, that's one of the kind of big things, which if they are seeing the rash is spreading significantly, particularly if petechiae are becoming purpuric, then of course they need to come in. Mm -hmm. Drowsiness and lethargy is one of the most sensitive signs in paediatrics. So most common serious problems end in a child being very lethargic. Mm -hmm. So that's sepsis. If that's dehydration, they become lethargic. If that's trauma, a head injury, for example, they become lethargic at the end. So really pushing the lethargy and they're sort of looking unwell to the parents to come back to us. And obviously, if they have any other bleeding manifestations whatsoever, that's going to be another time to very much come back. Thank you. And then if we flip this case around a little bit, what about this case could we change that would mean that you would say you wanted them to come in? So you've mentioned the purpura, you've mentioned being drowsy, lethargic. Anything else specifically that would change your advice on this case? 
Yeah. Again, first thing to say is if they look unwell to you in the community, then we would 100% go with your feeling on that. And so if you, if you come to an end of a conversation like this and you're thinking you should do something that you don't want to do because you mm. think, oh, this child doesn't look quite right. I can't put my finger on it, but this child doesn't look quite right. That gut feeling that we're so used to in primary care. And exactly. you're indeed here. But you're experts yeah. in, right? Like, and, and that's what primary care is like, all about in many ways, isn't it? So that number one, send them into us if you don't feel that something's right. Mm-hmm. I think if you have actively spreading rash then yes, send it to us. A child who's tachycardic is probably a one that you just need to be a little bit more aware of. Okay. And we have a rule in the children's emergency department where we are, we're very reticent to send home children who are tachycardic for their age appropriate normal values. And we just know that in children, tachycardia is one of the most sensitive signs of an underlying sepsis. And mm. they compensate so well. And because they've not had 50 years of smoking or atherosclerotic hearts and that kind of stuff, their heart rate does a lot of that compensation. And so if you have got a child who's just bobbing along and sort of just going that sort of 20, 30 beats tachycardic, that's one just to say, hang on a second, stop and think moment. Is there anything else that worries me? And actually, maybe I'm not quite sure about this one. I'll keep them around a little bit and let them settle or I'll send them in. And if they've got a temperature at the same time, can we put that heart rate down a little bit to the temperature? Or would you say, actually, well, no, they've got the high temperature, they've got the high heart rate, they need to be coming in? Yeah, so the temperature will definitely contribute to their high heart rate. And a rule of thumb that we use in the emergency department for children is that you can correct 10 beats per minute for every degree of temperature that's raised. So let's say if your top of normal for a six-month-old is about 160, let's say, and if they've got a fever of 38 degrees, we'd make that 170. Fever of 39, we'd make it 180. And so we can correct and you can have a temperature-adjusted heart rate. If that's within normal range and they're also meeting all the other stuff and they're like looking really well to you, then we very much support that decision with really good safety netting. If they're out of that range and we can't really explain it any other way, then those are the ones we need to be a bit more careful about. Fantastic. That's a really good guide to have in primary care. And you've talked a little bit about some of the worrying differentials. One of the ones that you mentioned was haematological malignancies. Is there anything about a case that would make you think, oh, actually, my ears are pricking up, I'm worried there might be an underlying haematological malignancy there, and that's an indication for them to come in? What sort of things should we be looking out for? Yeah, and I think with any of these, when anyone who's got any sort of bleeding manifestation anywhere, I think it's always just worth asking about any other bleeding manifestations, so gum bleeding, nosebleeds, blood in urine or poo, and easy bruising. And then just thinking about how long it's been going on for, this case obviously sounded very, very quick and mm, very grisel and yeah, very acute. Um, whereas if things have obviously been going on for a, a few weeks or a few months and we're getting some lethargy, we're getting some paleness, we're maybe getting a little bit of weight loss or faltering growth. And obviously those are the real red flag symptoms. And most of those symptoms in children, the answer is no. So actually they're very quick to run through. Mm. Like a lot of adults will have a lot more to say about those symptoms but in children it's like oh, no they've been growing I'm not worried about that or no I haven't noticed that I haven't noticed that so getting important negatives is quite quick then obviously just on the examination just worth a quick feel for that lymphadenopathy both axillary and inguinally this doesn't go well to radio but I am pointing to my axillary and my inguinal region <laughs> in the room and then just think about organomegaly as well so just a good feel of a soft tummy for any kind of obvious organomegaly just puts your mind at rest If we had that more grumbling long chronic case where there's enough in there that we're worried that there could be a leukaemia picture, say, should we be sending them directly into Pete A&E to get that full blood count done? Or is there a more appropriate pathway they should be going down? So I think it depends on your level of suspicion. And I think if you're highly suspicious 
and you think that something needs to be done pretty urgently, then they're always welcome for a particular discussion with the advice line, as in the paediatric advice line, which you can ring, which is the 01173428666 number. Fantastic. Um, and we're always welcome to have a discussion there, either through the BrizDoc team or through ours and ED, depending on where it goes to. It's a little bit of one to decide. So if you have medium suspicion, you think there's something not quite right here, but I do need them to speak quickly, then a two-week referral is probably the right thing to do. You can also get advice and guidance from the general paediatric team. That's an email which can be picked up within 24 hours. I think 95% get returned within 24 hours. That's also quite helpful for someone who's well but needs further investigation. Particularly if you know you're getting that quick feedback. Exactly. Absolutely. And you know that you're going to be able to sort this out in the next few days. But if it's a Friday evening and you are worried about the child and you think they could come to harm before I can get this back, then of course, yeah, you send them to us. Brilliant. Thank you for that. So if these patients were coming in to see you in the PEDS A&E department because there were just one or two of the red flags there that you'd be worrying about... What would your options be in the paediatric A&E department? What sort of investigations, management, monitoring might you be doing? Yeah, absolutely. And so we've got a good guideline actually for non-bludging rashes and it's a free available internet site. So actually you can just Google the Children's Hospital guidelines and have a look at it any time. So that might be a useful thing to look for in primary care as well. But realistically, our questions are, is it petechial or is it purpuric? If it's petechial, and we think that there is a decent explanation for it, even if they're febrile, then we've got the option of observing for a bit longer. And we have that luxury in the emergency department, which obviously is difficult in GP. But do we observe them for a little bit longer? Do we do a routine set of blood tests, including white cell count, CRP, and a full blood count? And mm. that helps us rule out most things. Some guidelines will talk about parameters within the blood tests. So the white cells being over 15 or under 5, CRP being over 8, and then thinking about treating with antibiotics in those cases. So we can observe, we can, we can do routine blood tests, and clearly, if we're worried and we think that they're purpuric and they are unwell, or they are unwell at all, then we can start some antibiotics and just make them safe. And then from this topic discussion, what would be your key take-home messages for primary care clinicians? So it's cliche because I've said it a few times, so I apologise for the repetition, <laughs> but the key message is, if you have a child who has got a non-bludging rash and you think they're unwell, trust that and send them into the emergency department, either by ambulance or whatever you think is appropriate, and consider giving them antibiotics in the community if you feel that they're that unwell. If they're not looking grossly unwell and they are looking well to you and they've got a particular rash, which you've got an explanation for, then you can also trust your clinical judgment on that as well. So you can trust it both ways. Mm. And actually for a particular rash, particularly in the SVC distribution, whether they're febrile or not, ideally not grossly tachycardic, we can be reassuring those with good safety netting. The other take-home message is that you can always call us and we can always have a discussion about it if they fall in the grey area in between. Fantastic. And I think my key take-homes really from the discussion that we've had is that PIC study is really helpful in terms of actually our gut is really important as is it a sick child in front of you or not. So the fever and the particular rash alone isn't enough to be sending them in, but actually you can imagine it the same as a child who didn't have that particular rash and are you worried, are you not, assuming it's not a purpuric one. I also thought that was really helpful, that tip about the fever and being able to correct for the heart rate. That's not something I'd heard of, that's not something I've been doing in general practice, so that's really helpful to know as well. So brilliant. Thanks so much, Michael. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us today and do look out for upcoming monthly episodes on primary care appropriate paediatric topics. Upcoming episodes include the limping child, infant feeding issues, head injuries and enuresis. Do leave feedback and add comments about topics you'd like to hear.
The contents of these podcasts are for educational purposes, aimed at primary care healthcare professionals only. They do not substitute professional medical advice or consultations with healthcare professionals. Information presented is the opinion of the healthcare professional interviewed based on their interpretation of best practice and guidelines at the time of the interview. It is the listener's responsibility to compare information given with up-to-date national and local guidelines. The BNSSG Training Hub, Ruth Bowen and interviewees are not liable for any clinical decisions made as a result of this podcast.